This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Hello and welcome to Bodies of Horror, the podcast where we take our favorite horror films from the classic, the camp, to the cringe, and we put them on the examination table and we look at them through the lens of disability. We'll be looking at characters that represent the disability experience, and we'll also be looking at films that have themes that resonate for those of us with disabilities. My name is Nicole, I'm your host, and I'm so thrilled to have you here with me. What is on the examination table today? Kids! Uh, Okay, that didn't sound right. What's on the examination table today is the disability experience of kids, particularly kids in two key Stephen King bodies of work, It and Silver Bullet. I'll be focusing the conversation on it around our character of Eddie Kasbrack and talking about our character of Marty Kozlaw for Silver Bullet. So without further ado, let's get into it and let's start the discussion with it. When you're a kid, I think the universe revolves around you. You think that you'll always be protected and cared for. Then, one day, you realize that's not true. Because when you're alone as a kid, the monsters see you as weaker. You don't even know they're getting closer. Until it's too late. My grandfather thinks this town is cursed. That all the bad things that happen in this town are because of one thing. An evil thing. What happens when another Georgie goes missing? Or one of us? Are you just gonna pretend it isn't happening like everyone else in this town? If we stick together, we'll win.
let's get into our plot breakdown. In October 1988, Bill Denbro crafts a paper sailboat for Georgie, his six-year-old brother. Georgie sails the boat along the rainy streets of the small town of Derry, Maine, only to have it fall down a storm drain. As he attempts to retrieve it, Georgie sees a clown in the drain, who introduces himself as Pennywise the Dancing Clown. Pennywise entices Georgie to come closer, then bites his arm off and drags him into the sewer. The following summer, Bill and his friends Richie Tozer, Eddie Kasbrack, and Stan Uris run afoul of older bully Henry, Henry Bowers and his gang. Bill, still haunted by Georgie's disappearance, calculates that his brother's body may have washed up in a marshy wasteland called the Barrens. He recruits his friends to investigate, believing Georgie may still be alive. Ben Hanscom, one of Bill's new classmates, learns that unexplained tragedies and child disappearances have plagued the town for centuries. Targeted by Bowers' gang, Ben flees into the Barrens and meets Bill's group. They find the sneaker of a missing girl named Betty Ripson, while a member of Bowers' gang, Patrick Hoxetter, is killed by Pennywise, Pennywise while he's searching the sewers for Ben. Beverly Marsh, a girl bullied over her rumored promiscuity, also joins the group. Both Bill and Ben develop feelings for her. Later, the group befriends orphan Mike Hanlon after rescuing him from Bowers. Each member of the group has encountered terrifying manifestations of the same menacing clown who attacked Georgie. A headless undead boy, that was Ben. A sink that spews blood only children can see, Beverly. A diseased and rotting leper, Eddie. A disturb- disturbing painting coming up to life, that's Stan. Mike's parents being burnt alive, that's Mike, and a frightening phantom of Georgie, and that would be Bill. Now calling themselves the Losers Club, they realize they are all being stalked by the same entity, which they refer to as It. They determine that It appears as their individual worst fears, awakening every 27 years to feed on the children of Derry before resuming hibernation, and moves about by using the sewer lines, which all lead to an old stone well hidden under an abandoned house on Kneebold Street. After Pennywise attacks them, the group ventures to the house to confront it, only to be separated and terrorized. As Pennywise gloats to Bill about Georgie, the losers regroup and Beverly impales Pennywise through the head, forcing the clown to retreat. The group flees the house and begins to splinter, with only Bill and Beverly resolute in fighting it. Weeks later, after Beverly confronts and incapacitates her sexually abusive father, Pennywise abducts her. The Losers Club reassembles and returns to the abandoned house to rescue her. Bowers, who has murdered his abusive father after being driven insane by it, attacks the group. Mike fights back and pushes Bowers down the well, apparently killing him. The losers descend into the sewers and find its underground lair, which contains a mountain of decayed circus props and children's belongings, around which the bodies of its children's victims float in midair. Beverly, now catatonic after being exposed to bright lights inside its gaping mouth, is restored to consciousness when Ben kisses her. 
Bill encounters Georgie, but recognizes that he is it in disguise as Pennywise. It takes Bill hostage, offering to spare the others and go into hibernation if they let it feed on Bill. The losers reject this, battling with it while overcoming their various fears. It is eventually defeated and retreats deeper into the sewers, with Bill declaring that it will starve during its hibernation. After finding the, the remnants of Georgie's raincoat, Bill finally comes to terms with his brother's death, with his friends comforting him. As summer ends, Beverly informs the group of a vision she had while catatonic, where she saw them fighting it again as adults. The losers swear a blood oath that they will return to Derry as adults if it returns. As the others make their goodbyes and disperse, Beverly and Bill discuss her leaving the next day to live with her aunt in Portland. Before she leaves, Bill reveals his feelings and they kiss. The second part of our story begins in 2016, and it has returned to Derry, Maine, and is killing children again. The only member of the Losers Club currently in the town is Mike Hanlon, and he calls the other members, Bill Denborough, Ben Hanscom, Beverly Marsh, Richie Tozer, Eddie Kasbrack, and Stanley Urs, to honor the promise they made 27 years ago to kill it if it came back. All of them travel back with hazy memories except for Stan, who completes suicide out of his fear of the creature. At a restaurant, Mike refreshes the losers with memories before it torments them with hallucinations in Stan's suicide. Richie and Eddie decide to leave until Beverly reveals that she has had psychic visions of their death should they fail to fulfill their promise. Mike shows Bill, via a drug-induced vision, that the Native American ritual of Chud can stop it for good. Mike explains that the ritual requires items from their past to be sacrificed. The members' searches of these involve traumatizing encounters with it, mostly its main form of Pennywise the Dancing Clown. One of these involves Pennywise taunting Richie about his sexuality, only for Eddie to defend him and for it to shrink and flee. Henry Bowers, whom it frees from a mental institution Henry was sent to after being arrested for murdering his father, also hunts the losers. He attacks Eddie at the losers' hotel and then Mike at the library, but Richie kills him. The losers rejoin Bill, who just failed to save a young boy named Dean from being killed by it at Niebolt's house, talking him out of facing it alone. After saving Richie, Ben, and Beverly from it, the group descends into a cavern beneath the sewers and perform the ritual in the remains of the meteor that brought it to Earth. The ritual traps the deadlights in a ceiling jar, but it emerges from the jar the giant red balloon which burst, revealing it as Pennywise spider hybrid. Pennywise pressures Mike into revealing that it killed the natives originally performing the ritual because their fears overtook them, a fact Mike had hidden. It attacks the losers and places Bill, Ben, and Beverly in nightmarish hallucinations, which they escape once Bill releases his guilt over its murder of his younger brother, Georgie, and Beverly realizes Ben wrote the love letter. 
Mike stands up to Pennywise, only to almost get eaten, but Richie manages to distract it, getting caught in its deadlights. Eddie saves him, but is fatally impaled. After Eddie explains how he made it feel small earlier, the losers mock Pennywise, calling it various names and insults and causing it to shrink. Mike rips out its heart, which he and the losers crush, finally killing it. The losers are forced to leave Eddie, who died from his injuries, when its cavern implodes, destroying the Kneebolt house. The remaining losers return to their old swimming area and wash off from their confrontation with it, and join hands to comfort Richie as he mourns for Eddie. Its demise has also caused the scars on their hands to disappear. After the losers part ways, Ben and Beverly get married, Richie returns to the kissing bridge where he had once carved his and Eddie's initials, Mike decides to move out of Derry and start a new life, and Bill begins writing his new story before receiving a call from Mike as he leaves Derry, learning that Stan sent them all posthumous letters. The letters reveal, because Stan was too scared to face it, his suicide was intended to strengthen his friends against it. He asks the remaining losers to live life to the fullest potential. So how does that story tie into disability? Well, in a couple of different ways via a couple of members of our Losers Club. So I really want to hone in on talking about Eddie first, but I also want to talk a little bit about uh, Bill as well. But let's talk about Eddie. Eddie is our quote-unquote sick member of the Losers Club. When we meet him in Chapter 1, he is, you know, our severe asthmatic who uses an inhaler. He, you know, has some other kind of undefined ailments that his mom uh, kind of references, and she's always on him, uh, you know, to be careful and really tries to get him to stay away from his friends out of concern that he'll get sick or injured. And we discover throughout the film that there's a lot more to kind of his illnesses than what we see. And that's kind of a really, I think, prominent theme of it is that, you know, things on the surface are not necessarily as they are beneath. Now, while the Losers Club don't really say much about Eddie's asthma, they do kind of razz him a little bit about his perceived kind of overcautiousness in different situations. There is a scene when they are first going down into the barrens and into the sewers, and Eddie is you know, really freaked out and doesn't want to go into what he calls the gray water. And I always found this, um, and this is also something that I should also note that is part of the uh, book and the miniseries. Um, You know, I never really found that to be overcautious. I never would conceive a world where, you know, I'd want to go willingly stomping through sewage. Um, so the fact that Eddie is really the only one that's like, uh, 
this seems really gross, uh, didn't really seem like coming from a place of overcautiousness, but it's kind of, you know, used as an example of him, uh, you know, being kind of a germaphobe or a hypochondriac, if you will. And so he also makes a couple of different references uh, in the film, you know, about like how his mom said that, you know, writing uh, on public transportation in New York will give you uh, any number of diseases and things like that. So his hypochondria is kind of pieced in in those comments. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, he always is there with them. He's willing to go along. Now, one moment that is in the miniseries and the book, I believe, but not in it, chapter one or two, is a moment where all of the losers take a hit off of Eddie's inhaler uh, before, I think, uh, going down into the sewers. One of the reasons that this moment stands out to me is because it's after Eddie has learned that his inhaler is a placebo. It's just water and camper, so it doesn't really have any medicinal properties. But, you know, the Losers Club, I think, still recognize it as a source of comfort and a source of, uh, I think, some security for Eddie in a lot of ways. It still has some kind of impact, and it provides him a little bit of strength. And so they all... Uh, take a hit as kind of a form of unity. This moment also stands in contrast to what we talked about in the Nightmare on Elm Street episode, where I mentioned that oftentimes the portrayal of, you know, asthma, allergies, um, are usually kind of shorthand for kind of non-illness illnesses. You know, they're conditions that really don't have any kind of impact. They're non-entities, essentially. And this moment kind of contrasts that because it is shown as being a thing. Um, And, you know, the Losers Club never really uh, come at Eddie with, you know, just full out, hey, there's nothing wrong with you. They give a little bit of credence to to that. So it's kind of an interesting element to that moment as well. Another small moment where... Eddie's uh, kind of ailments come to the rescue of the group is when they come across Ben Hanscom after he has been uh, injured by Henry Bowers and the other bullies. Eddie seems to have a really quick uh, kind of grasp of the situation and knows exactly what they need to do to get Ben some first aid and, you know, treat his wounds. They also need to uh, bring in Bev because, you know, Eddie knows the supplies that they need to get and can go in and get them from the pharmacy, but he knows that by doing that is going to kind of set off a sequence of events that is going to alert his mom and thus he is going to then, uh, you know, be on high alert with her. So Bev comes to the rescue in in terms of them being able to get the supplies and get out of the pharmacy undetected. But, you know, it's 
Eddie's kind of knowledge that I think makes them able to move pretty quickly and get Ben treated. So let's talk now about Sonia Kasprak, Eddie's mom. Sonia is kind of a, a interesting character because she falls into um, a kind of character that we see uh, in stories like this of the over-attentive, overbearing mom. And, you know, there are shades of, you know, either uh, Munchausen by proxy or uh, factitious uh, disorder. And Sonia definitely fits those qualifiers. She has convinced Eddie that he is sick as a means to kind of keep him under her thumb and keep him protected in her eyes and it's you know there's plenty of kind of other examples of this but you know one I would say most recently one that takes it maybe to a whole different level but one that kind of goes in that same vein is uh, the movie Run with Sarah Paulson she plays a mom of a young girl with a disability and well, multiple uh, kind of disabilities. And you come to find out that is Munchausen by proxy, that she has been making her child ill uh, the whole time as kind of a means of control and a means to, you know, potentially get some of that attention as well. So there's definitely um, that at play with Sonia. Although I think it probably factors more into a factitious disorder where it's not that she's actively like poisoning or harming uh, Eddie in a physical way to keep him sick or ill, um, but more of the uh, kind of fear. You know, she's operating from a a place of fear and that has uh, a pretty uh, large impact on Eddie. It makes him, you know kind of very overcautious and you know they uh, he gets referred to as a hypochondriac and again I go back to the whole uh, situation with wading through sewers and I'm, I'm still very much team Eddie like it's gross and I don't know why uh, anyone would do so without at least a moment of pause but um, it's clear that that's had some kind of psychological effect It also has a psychological effect as he gets older um, because I know in the miniseries in particular as he is leaving uh, to go back to Derry, you see him take, uh, you know, a bunch of medications out of the cabinet and that's kind of played over into uh, chapter two as well. So, um, you know, the, that, piece of him is still very much active um, even after he's left Derry. Um, But another aspect of kind of, you know, this relationship is that, you know, again, one of the reasons that a parent, um, you know, operates in this manner is, you know, I think coming from these really misguided feelings of wanting to protect their child or, 
you know, out of concern. And it becomes something a lot more uh, complex. It also fosters a sense of isolation and dependence because, you know, the parent is operating with a larger sense of control and the child isn't being able to develop some of those uh, independent skills uh, because of that. And, you know, again, it's pushing them away from friends and, you know, just really hammering in that dependence on that parental unit. And this is perfectly displayed with Eddie and his mom, because not only as a child is his mom, you know, executing that level of control over his life with only kind of moments where he's able to kind kind of stand up for himself. But as an adult, he marries what is essentially the facsimile of his mom. And that's the point. And the point is he became so dependent on his mom that even after his mom had passed, he still needed you know, his mom there. And so found a woman uh, to kind of fit into that role. Unfortunately, that is something that is um, a pretty prevalent thought uh, around individuals with disabilities is this idea of cycle of care, where it's not necessarily about building unique relationships with folks. It's about you know, forming care relationships. I need someone to take care of me. I need someone to do things for me. And that's the basis of the relationship. And that's obviously not true. So um, I, I think that their relationship and dynamic is is pretty interesting in that regard. Another important way to see how that impacts Eddie is in how his fear manifests, which is the leper. The leper is kind of the embodiment of all of the disease and illness that Eddie has been kind of primed to be afraid of. And so it's, I, I think, a pretty important element. That's how uh, Pennywise, when not in clown form, presents to Eddie. It shows that impact. Now, that kind of wraps up what I want to talk about with Eddie, but I do also want to mention Bill. Bill is our leader of the Losers Club, essentially, and while he doesn't have the same uh, quote-unquote ailments as Eddie, he does have a stutter, a prominent stutter, um, particularly in moments of distress as a youngster. And uh, particularly in these moments of panic, he has a little mantra that he has to uh, recite in order to kind of calm himself down. So what does Bill's stutter have to do with disability? Because a stutter isn't a disability, right? Well, right-ish. But Bill is still bullied because of his stutter, just like any... Uh, kid with a disability may be singled out and bullied because of that. I mean, let's look at our current 
president here in the U.S. He has a uh, stutter and something that he has to work through when giving speeches. And often, a lot of times, uh, you'll see comments of people saying, well, you know, he had to pause here or his speech pattern was a little different in this spot. And, you know, they'll make comments about how it's, you know, a sign of the fact that he has Alzheimer's or things like that. And that's not the case at all. Um, it's not uh, an indication of any kind of cognitive impairment whatsoever. But that's how it's kind of perceived uh, by people who may not totally understand what a stutter is and how folks have to kind of work through that. And Bill does do that. He has his little uh, mantra that he recites, which helps him kind of refocus and kind of calm down the stutter. But the other aspect of Bill's stutter that kind of connects with some of the, uh, that connects with another idea that I've mentioned in other episodes is this concept of how you can just grow out of or overcome a disability or a challenge extremely easy. And that's kind of the case with Bill. We, when we see him as an adult, his stutter isn't there. It's not prominent because he's away from dairy and away from kind of the uh, fear and the uh, kind of baggage of all of that. And that's kind of what, you know, has kind of instigated uh, the pronounced stutter because it comes back once he gets the call from my Canlan. And of course, that's not the case. A stutter is something that lots of people have to deal with for their entire lives. You know, it isn't just I can move away and, you know, once I am able to overcome X, everything is fine. I don't have this uh, issue at all. So it's something that is pretty prominent. And because Bill is a kid, it's particularly something that we see, you know, and I mentioned it with, uh, you know, and talking about how asthma and allergies are kind of handled in some of the same way. It's not something that's super serious, something that, you know, you can overcome with, you know, the uh, minimum amount of effort. So that kind of wraps up uh, a bit on it. So now let's talk a little bit about Silver Bullet. It began in May. And every month after that, whenever the moon was full, it happened again. And again. What was that? Somebody pointed at me. Nobody knew who or what was responsible. Come on. They only knew it had to be stopped. Now, 
from the master of mystery and suspense. Stephen King's Silver Bullet. So, let's get into our plot synopsis of Silver Bullet. The rocky relationship between Jane Kosla, the film's narrator, and her paraplegic younger brother Marty changes after a series of murders in their small rural town of Tarkers Mills, Maine, starting in the spring of 1976. Railroad worker Arnie Westrom is decapitated by an unseen attacker. Pregnant Stella Randolph prepares to kill herself but is brutally murdered in her own bedroom. An abusive father is killed in his greenhouse, and Marty's best friend, Brady Kincaid, is also killed. After Brady's death, citizens form a vigilante justice group. Although local sheriff Joe Holler attempts to stop the citizens, he relents after Brady's father, Herb, berates him. Reverend Lester Lowell fails to dissuade the townsfolk from causing further bloodshed. When the vigilantes hunt for the killer in the nearby woods, three are attacked and killed. The survivors later deny seeing anything unusual. Afterwards, Reverend Lowe dreams that he is presiding over a mass funeral when his congregation, including the bodies in the caskets, begins to transform into werewolves before his eyes and attack him. He awakens screaming and asks God to let it end. Because of the mounting unsolved murders, curfews are put in place, canceling the town's 4th of July celebration. The Coslaws decide to have their own backyard party and invite their mother Nan's alcoholic brother, Red. Red gives Marty a custom-built wheelchair motorcycle, which he, nickname, which he nicknames the Silver Bullet, as well as a pile of fireworks so he can have his own celebration. Marty uses the silver bullet to go out in the middle of the night to a bridge where he lights the fireworks. The fireworks get the werewolf's attention and it confronts him, but he escapes after launching a rocket into the creature's eye. Marty enlists Jane's help to look for someone with a newly injured or missing eye. She discovers that Reverend Lowe is missing his left eye. Realizing that no adult would believe his story, Marty begins sending anonymous notes to Reverend Lowe telling him that he knows who he is, what he is, and that he should, uh, and that he should complete suicide in order to stop the killings. Lowe tries to run Marty off the road with his car. When Marty is trapped under a closed covered bridge, Lowe, whose condition has fractured his sanity, tries to rationalize the murders he has committed as doing God's work. Lowe apologizes and moves in for the kill until Marty calls for help from a passerby. The siblings manage to convince Red that Lowe is connected to the murders and attempted to kill Marty. Red persuades Sheriff Holler to investigate. That night, Holler, still skeptical but desperate to find the killer, goes to Lowe's house to find and finds Lowe has locked himself in his garage to restrain himself from further killings. Before Holler can arrest him, Lowe transforms and bludgeons Holler to death. 
Knowing the werewolf is coming for them next, Marty and Jane convince Red to take Jane's silver cross and Marty's silver medallion to the gunsmith, who melts them down into a silver bullet. On the night of the full moon, they wait for the werewolf, who cuts powers to the, who cuts power to the house and smashes its way inside, attacking Red. The bullet is nearly lost in the melee, but Marty is able to retrieve it and shoots the werewolf in the right eye. The corpse turns back into low before dying. As the trio recover, Marty and Jane say they love each other and embrace, and Jane narrates that although she hadn't always been able to say it, she was always able to say it from then on. So, I'm super excited to talk a little bit about Silver Bullet because this was one of the films I know I mentioned in the episode where I talked about sibling relationships. Um, and this was one I was considering actually focusing on for that episode, but I actually think it fits kind of nicely here because I really want to talk about Marty. Um, but I do want to talk a little bit about his relationship with Jane as well. So let's start with the relationship between him and his sister. The sister is kind of our central character. I mean, they both kind of are, uh, I would say, along with Red towards the end. But, you know, Jane is our narrator. We're really seeing the story play out from her uh, retelling her perspective. When we are introduced to the siblings, they have what I would say a pretty fraught relationship. Um, she, as an older sibling, I think is probably tasked with, you know, caring for her younger brother uh, quite a bit. And the fact that he uses a wheelchair probably makes that a little bit more of uh, an ongoing and, and probably daunting task for her. Um, so, uh, we see them in the town square at a celebration and she, her parents, their parents have her go and find Marty and he and his friend Brady are uh, going to play a little bit of a prank on her. But I would say from the get go, Marty is kind of trying to get Brady to reel it in. And it's this whole thing, um, Brady is up in the tree with a snake, scares uh, Jane, and she ends up falling and tears her hose and makes a mess of her outfit. And it really does set the tone for their relationship throughout, I think, a bulk of the film because she's really just annoyed and angry with him. But she's still there's still kind of this sense of care and love to them. Later on that evening, he goes into Jane's room and gives her money to replace the hose because he feels responsible. And, you know, even though he had tried to kind of rein Brady in, and I think when they're driving home from the celebration, I think even the dad, knowing what has happened, makes a comment and, Maybe I misheard this, um, but, you know, said something along the lines of, well, you know, you can be mad at your brother, but it's not like he was the one that climbed up in the tree because Brady had been up in the tree with the snake to scare Jane. So I kind of laughed at that moment a bit, you know, 
just kind of a, a silly little uh, comment from from Dad, but you know, as I think the plot synopsis really does a good job at kind of stating is that as they're kind of working together to figure out what's going on in their town, there is a, kind of a growing closeness between them, but they're never uh, a pair of siblings that are you know, without kind of care for each other. You know, even after they get home from the celebration at the beginning of the film, you know, the parents say, well, hey, go and help your brother out of the car. Here's, you know, here's his wheelchair. She does it and doesn't, you know, throw a a fit about it. Doesn't just leave him in the car to kind of fend for himself or tell the parents to do it themselves. She's... She does it. She gets him into the chair and then goes. So, um, it's it's a really I think well executed and natural relationship. And while Marty's disability plays a part in that, I think it's also, a, you know, as Red tells the kids, you know. Your guys' relationship is very much like mine and your mom. You know, this is a very kind of naturalistic uh, portrayal of kind of an older sibling and a younger sibling that are kind of in that stage where they're kind of at odds, you know. So I really do like their dynamic. And there's a lot of these really sweet and kind moments between them, um, even when they're a little bit antagonistic against each other. But let's talk a little bit about Marty. So Marty is a character that's in a wheelchair. But one thing that is kind of wild to me about this film is the fact that from the get-go, he has two wheelchairs. We see him when he's at uh, the town square or the park um, where they're having this event at the beginning of the film, he's in like this electric wheelchair. And it is uh, when they're coming home and they're pulling into the house, we see that it's uh, put in a little trailer uh, on the back of the car. And then he has a more uh, standardized wheelchair that he gets into when he gets home. And I thought that was really kind of interesting because this is obviously a family that's really uh putting the thought into Marty's independence and autonomy you know wanting him to be able to kind of move around and do his own thing as he wants and so being able to have these different mobility devices to kind of meet different needs um uh, is not something that you necessarily see um and I thought that was really a cool thing. I think it's really much in keeping with kind of the idea of the film, you know, with Red giving him kind of his wheelchair motorcycle hybrid a little later on. You know, this is a family that's really kind of treating Marty as someone that is capable of independence and are really being thoughtful that, you know, the kind of mobility devices he has should be ones that work for him and what he wants to do. Another aspect that I really love in this portrayal 
particularly as it relates to kind of Marty's relationship with these mobility devices, there's never uh, a scene or a moment where, you know, it's about Marty being able to walk. That's not part of the narrative in any way, shape, or form. His freedom comes from mobility devices. They're not seen as uh, deterrence at all. Um, in fact, you know, and that's what makes the silver bullet itself really cool is that he has this really kind of kick-ass uh, device here that anyone I think would uh, kind of be jealous of. And, you know, it's kind of a, a celebration of, you know, the idea that these mobility devices aren't just these clunky, horrible and uh, confining uh, components of having a disability. They are access points to independence and freedom and all of those things as well. So I, I like that we, we have that as kind of our through line. And again, we're not going into the uh, absolutely abhorrent overused uh, narrative of, you know, a person finds strength or is able to succeed by being able to overcome their disability, by being able to walk or whatever, you know, the case may be in that moment. So it's, it's, I think, a pretty powerful statement there. And certainly in contrast to what we've talked about in, uh, you know, other films like Nightmare on Elm Street with uh, the Dream Warriors and Will, you know, with his dream sequence where the wheelchair is seen as, you know, this absolutely medieval torture device. Um, you know, it's seen as something that's confining him, not giving him the ability to do what he wants. And this is something completely different. I mean, and even if we look at situations where, um, you know, mobility devices, mobility devices haven't necessarily been, you know, uh, to that degree of maligned, you know, even going back to Franklin in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, his wheelchair was very perfunctory. It served its purpose, but it wasn't something that was kind of custom made for him, you know, technology and that kind of, uh, innovation just hadn't gotten to the place where it was here. So, you know, imagine the freedom and kind of maybe the change of tone in the, you know, some of those moments in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, if Franklin wasn't so uh, reliant on, uh, you know, individuals to kind of help him get about. I think that's something that is kind of interesting to think about. Um, you know, I still stand by everything that I said about Franklin and always will. But, you know, a lot of the uh, small moments where he seems really put out is because he doesn't have, you know, a uh, fraction of the, uh, I guess, autonomy that 
Marty has. So it's it's a really cool portrayal. Um, I like it. I hadn't seen this movie. I rewatched it uh, yesterday before uh, recording, and I thought that it was. Uh, it's a film I hadn't seen in a few years. A friend of mine uh, did a Stephen King movie marathon. I think I mentioned it when I'm talking about Pet Cemetery, maybe. Um, I'm not for sure, but uh, you know. It wasn't one of the Stephen King movies that I really grew up watching. I think I'd seen it maybe once, maybe, maybe twice uh, growing up and then watch it again, uh, you know, when we were going through films to see what we wanted to play at our kind of Stephen King movie uh, marathon. And I really liked this. I think that the werewolf effects are terrible uh but on the flip side the effect of uh the reverend uh becoming human again after he's been shot is actually really really good um but in in the decapitation at the beginning excellent um so some of the effects really work but the werewolf effect is pretty not all that stellar but it's still a really fun movie, and I think the performances um, stand out. I mean, you've got a really young Corey Haim, and I think he's really fantastic as Marty. And I love Jane as a character as well. I think it's all um, it's all good stuff. And of course, Gary Busey is being, I think, as toned down Gary Busey perfection as one can expect being that weird relative that says really awkward strange things but that you like a whole lot and that you seem to kind of get in a weird way so i really like this a lot more than i remember um from watching it even uh not all that too far uh, long ago so if it's one that you haven't seen, because I think it's one that, you know, unless you're, you know, you kind of grew up uh, seeking out werewolf films or this was uh, something, you know, you were kind of a, a Corey uh, fan of the time. I think this may be one that possibly slipped off a radar and it's quite good. So I think that is kind of going to wrap up the uh the conversation on silver bullet and our conversation on these two different stephen king films one of the things that i really liked about kind of pairing these two together is i think that they hit on completely different elements while having some similarities as well so um and i think that they did a really nice job at also connecting to some past films and episodes so yeah this this was a lot of fun so not only does that mark the end of this episode but it marks the end of this season question mark of bodies of horror that's right this ends the 12 episode run of bodies of horror at anatomy of 
a scream. And I'm going to take a small break to kind of figure out what the next phase of Bodies of War will be. But don't worry, it's not going away. Um, Not only will these episodes still be here, but I do plan to continue uh, Bodies of War in some way, shape, or form. But like I said, I kind of want to plan because I've got some really great ideas in mind. And I kind of want to sort them out and see what I can get get going because I think there's a lot of other really exciting territory to explore in this kind of topic. So stay tuned for all of that. But, you know, whether it's on a different network or here uh, on Anatomy of a Scream or if it's just something that I put out myself, um, I do hope that you'll continue to listen. And I've absolutely absolutely loved being a member of the anatomy of a scream pod squad it has been a blast uh to get to know some of the other uh podcasters here on the network and get to know some of the folks behind the scenes that work really hard to get these shows up and going for you all um the ever uh kind of growing number of shows that continue to pop up is just absolutely outstanding and the shows are incredible. So, you know, make sure that you are subscribed to Anatomy of a Scream if you aren't already. I I hope you are by now. Um, and listen to, uh, you know, just all of the new shows that are coming out because they're incredible stuff. It's just outstanding. Lots of really diverse uh, content creators and different topics. And you're going to find a lot that you love. So make sure you've done all of that that podcast business of subscribing and, you know, rate, leave comments, all of that good stuff. Because it helps other other people find uh, the network as well. Now, if you want to... uh, reach out and say hello. Um, always welcome that. I can be found on Twitter at Nicole NDC and that's Nicole with an H. Or you can shoot me an email at bodiesofhorror at gmail.com. So thank you again so much for listening and until next time. Scream Pod Squad.